I am Peng Xian Qian, the editor-in-chief of Hard Rhythm. The August 2017 issue of Hard Rhythm included original articles, reviews, editorials, and ACC AHA HRS guidelines for syncope. The journal also features the Josephson and Willens ECG lessons and four EP news articles. There is a featured article entitled Cardiac Magnetic Residence Aided Scar Dechanneling. Dr. Dan Morin has conducted an author interview on this article. You can find the interview on the Harism Journal website. The work was done by Andrew et al. from Barcelona, Spain. They studied two groups of patients. One had late gadolinium enhancement cardiac magnetic residence, or CMR, before the procedure, and the control group did not have CMR. They found that CMR is helpful in locating the scars, therefore reduces the number of RF delivery and shortens the procedure time. CMR group also had a higher VT ablation success rate than the control group. CMR is a non-invasive procedure fully utilizing a non-invasive procedure to improve the outcomes and shorten the times of invasive procedure is beneficial to our patients. However, the main weakness of this study is that the patients were not randomized. I see this work as hypothesis generating. Hopefully this will lead to future prospective randomized trials. The next article is a CME article entitled Acute Efficacy, Safety, and Long-Term Clinical Outcomes Using the Second-Generation Cryo-Balloon for Pulmonary Vein Isolation in Patients with Left Common Pulmonary Vein, a multi-center study. You can earn CME credits by reading that article. This work was performed by Heger and his co-authors from Hamburg, Germany. The authors targeted patients with a specific pulmonary vein anomaly, that is, the left common pulmonary vein. They reported that about 11% of their patients had this anomaly. Cryoablation with second-generation cryoballoon was highly successful in that group, and the results were comparable with patients without left common pulmonary veins. These findings are very helpful in managing patients with left common pulmonary veins. However, the total number of patients with a left common pulmonary vein was only 74, and follow-up uh, follow duration was less than two years. More patients and longer follow-up are needed to better document the efficacy and the safety of this procedure. The next article is entitled the T-peak to T-end interval as an electrocardiographic risk marker of arrhythmic and mortality outcomes, a, systemic, a systematic review and a meta-analysis. This work was done by Tse et al. from Hong Kong, People's Republic of China. The T-peak T-end interval is defined by the time interval from the peak of the T-wave to the end of the T-wave. The peak of the T-wave corresponds to the end of the repolarization of the epicardial cells, while the end of the T-wave is the end of the repolarization of the M-cells. 
Therefore, the T-peak to T-end interval is a measure of transmural heterogeneity. The authors performed a literature search and found all articles relevant to the subject. They then performed a meta-analysis and showed the T-peak to T-end interval is a useful risk stratification tool in different diseases and in the general population. It predicts not only arrhythmic deaths, but also total mortality. Interestingly, this method was most useful in predicting the risk of patients with Brugada syndrome, followed by hypertension, heart failure, and ischemic heart diseases. The authors have done a good job in finding and analyzing all relevant literature in this subject. The problem of this type of study is that the authors have no control of the patient recruitment or study protocols. In addition, it is still unclear if T-peak to T-end interval can be used for patient management. A, prospect a prospective trial will be needed to test that hypothesis. The next article is entitled Safety and Utility of Magnetic Resonance Imaging in Patients with Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices by Strong et al. from Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. The authors performed a prospective study using strict protocols to determine if it is safe and effective to perform MRI in patients with non-MRI-conditioned cardiac implantable electrical devices. They found that the MRI was safe in these patients. There was no death after 189 scans. The only major adverse event was one patient who had a loss of pacing. They also reported that almost all scans were good, and 75 of the studies have changed management. This is a very important study because many of our patients still have non-MRI-conditioned devices. We should not deny them the access to MRI, especially the MRI that was important for their patient, uh, disease management. A limitation of imaging patients with such device, devices is that the physicians have to follow strict protocols to make sure that the MRI are done safely. It is therefore quite time-consuming and costly to perform these scans. Dr. Rod Gimbel, who wrote an editorial on this article, predicted that MRI-conditioned devices might still be useful in clinical practice because they can reduce the time and the cost associated with imaging procedures in device patients. The next article is the QUIDAM study, Q-U-I-D-A-M study, which is hydroquinidine therapy for the management of Brugada syndrome patients at high arrhythmic risk. The study was performed by Andorin et al. from Nantes, France. Hydroquinidine is a drug that might be useful in preventing arrhythmias in patients with Brugada syndrome, but there is no definitive data to support its effectiveness. Therefore, the authors performed a multi-center, double-blind, randomized study comparing hydroquinidine and placebo in patients with Bugatta syndrome with an ICD. They studied a total of 50 patients. They found that hydroquinidine seems to be effective in reducing arrhythmic events, 
but also has a lot of side effects. The hydroquinidine did not change or suppress the Bugatta pattern on ECG. The overall benefit was not statistically significant. Dr. Belhassen wrote an editorial on this study. The title of the editorial was Assessing the Clinical Efficacy of Quinidine in Bugatta Syndrome, colon, quote, Mission Impossible, unquote. That title pretty much summarized the difficulties in uh, improving the clinical efficacy of quinidine in managing patients with Brugada syndrome. As we learned from the old days, when quinidine was a commonly used drug, the side effect profile of this drug is not good enough for long-term use. Currently, there are two hypotheses about Brugada syndrome. The depolarization hypothesis says that the fundamental problem of the disease is depolarization and impulse propagation. Therefore, ablation of the fragmented potential is needed for arrhythmia control. The repolarization hypothesis focused on the excessive ITO in the right ventricle as an important pathogenic mechanism. To test the repolarization hypothesis, we will need a better ITO blocker. Quinidine is just not good enough for that purpose. The next article is entitled Early Reportation is Associated with a Significantly Increased Risk of Ventricular Arrhythmias and Sudden Cardiac Death in Patients with Structural Heart Diseases. This article was submitted by Qian et al. from Guangzhou, China. The purpose of the study is to determine the prognostic significance of early reportation in patients with structural heart diseases. The authors performed a literature search and found 19 papers with over a thousand cases of ventricular tachyarrhythmias or sudden cardiac death. They found that early reportation, especially those with J-point elevation in inferior leads, notching configuration, and horizontal or descending ST segment are associated with much higher risk of ventricular tachyarrhythmias or sudden cardiac death than patients without early reportation. The early reportation patterns on ECG, such as J-wave elevation, suggest abnormalities of early phase of cardiac action potential. There are many candidate ion currents uh, abnormalities that can cause this problem, but most of the cases with early reportation do not have specific genetic abnormalities. The mechanism of early reportation and the reason why it increased ventricular arrhythmias and sudden death in patients with structural heart diseases remain unclear. The next manuscript is entitled Glucose Ingestion Causes Cardiac Reportation Disturbances in Type 1 Long QT Syndrome Patients and Healthy Subjects. This paper was written by Haotian Cavalius from Copenhagen, Denmark. The purpose of this study was to test the hypothesis that KCNQ1 long QT syndrome patients are at particular risk for cardiac reportation changes during the relative hyperglycemia that occurs after oral glucose load. They found that glucose injection, ingestion increases the QT interval and changes the T-wave morphology more in patients with KCNQ1 mutation 
than in control patients. Normally, the ventricular repolarization depends primarily on the slow and fast delayed rectifier potassium current, or IKS and IKR, respectively. Both hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia will reduce IKR. However, because normal control patients have good IKS, the QT interval was not significantly increased. In comparison, patients with KCNQ1 mutation was born with reduced IKS and rely on the IKR to maintain repolarization. Therefore, a reduction of IKR by hyperglycemia can cause large changes of T-wave morphology and larger increase of QT interval in patients with type 1 long QT syndrome than controls. Long QT syndrome type 1 is not the only disease that is worsened by food. Glucose tolerance tests and large meals can also augment the characteristic ECG changes of Brugada syndrome. Dr. Minori Horie, who wrote an editorial about this paper, suggested that changes in insulin level might play a role in these ECG changes. Insulin has significant effects on cardiac ion channels and could have more effects in patients with ion channel abnormalities than in normal controls. The next article is entitled Lidocaine Attenuation Testing, an in vivo investigation of putative long QT3 associated variants in the SCM5A encoded sodium channel. This paper came from Anderson et al. of Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Long QT syndrome type 3 accounts for about 5 to 10% of all patients with long QT syndrome. These patients have SCNF5A mutation that causes increased late sodium current. This gain of function sodium current causes prolonged QT interval. However, SCN5A is a large gene with many variants. When genetic testing returns a variant of uncertain significance, or VOS, on SCN5A, it is important to determine if that VOS is in fact pathogenic for this particular patient. The authors figure out that lidocaine, which is a sodium channel blocker, may shorten the QT interval by greater than 30 milliseconds in patients with pathogenic SCN5A mutations, but does not attenuate QT interval prolongation in patients who do not have pathogenic mutations. The results of this study uh, support uh, the uh, hypothesis. The author called this particular test the lidocaine attenuation test, which helps differentiate patients with type 3 long QT syndrome with pathogenic mutations from patients with non-contributory SCM5A variants. The limitation of this uh, study is that the case number is small and that the sensitivity and the specificity of a lidocaine attenuation test were not 100%. However, it is a nice first attempt to solve a very difficult and complex problem of making sense of genetic testing results. The next article is entitled Cardiac Transplantation in Children and Adolescents 
with long QT syndrome by Kelly et al. from Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. The authors reviewed over 300 pediatric patients referred for long QT syndrome. Among them, only three received transplant, uh, transplantation. All three patients were long QT type 3 and had arrhythmia before one year of life. This study showed that infantile onset of ETVF and long QT3 identify patients at the highest risk of transplantation. However, a majority of these patients could still be managed successfully with a combination of drug therapy, left cardiac sympathetic denervation, and ICD implantation, and therefore very few patients needed cardiac transplantation. The next article is, is entitled Clinical Profile and the Mutation Spectrum of Long QT Syndrome in Saudi Arabia, the Impact of Consanguinity. The authors were Al Hasnan et al. from Kim Faisal Specialist Hospital and Research Center, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. The authors studied 56 Saudi families with Long QT Syndrome. The KCNQ1 mutations were identified in about half the families. There were a high instance of homozygous mutations, and these homozygous mutations are associated with severe phenotypes. The next article is entitled Epicardial Endocardial Breakthrough During Stable Atrial Macro Reentry Evidence from Ultra High Resolution 3D Mapping. The paper was authored by Pathik et al. from Royal Melbourne Hospital, Victoria, Australia. The peptinated muscle in the right atrium is often the site of conduction block. During atrial fibrillation, the waveform can reach a lying block, then resurface in a nearby area causing focal discharges. These focal discharges, or epicardial-endocardial breakthrough, is in fact a part of the reentrant re circuit and may be important in arrhythmia maintenance. These findings are consistent with previous mapping studies in animal models showing that focal discharges on the surface might be caused by a transmural reentry. A limitation of the study is that the authors only studied right atrium. It is unclear if the results are applicable to the left atrium. Also, ablation at that area terminated atrial tachycardia in one patient. Whether or not these patterns of activation can be useful in guiding castor ablation remain unclear because only one patient has been successfully ablated using these mapping techniques. The next article is entitled Percentile Categorization of QT Interval as an Approach to Identifying Adult Patients at Risk of Cardiovascular Death. This paper was authored by Mohibi et al., Stanford University, Palo Alto, California. The authors studied over 16,000 veterans who had an ECG taken between 1987 and 1999 and were followed for cardiovascular diseases. They used four different methods to correct the effects of heart rate on QT interval and, and found that the Bazet formula is the only one that does not effectively eliminate the influence of the heart rate on the QT interval. However, surprisingly, the QTC prolongation determined by Bazet formula 
outperformed other methods in predicting cardiovascular diseases among these veterans. The authors validated in an adult population that the 98th percentile QT interval specific to heart rate changes and 6 identifies those at risk for cardiovascular diseases. The strength of this study is that a single QTC measurements on ECG can be useful risk stratifier for the development of cardiovascular diseases. The limitations include an absence of mortality information and that few women were included in the study because the study was derived from a veteran's population. The next article is a basic science investigation, investigation entitled Role of Suppression of the Inward Rectifier Current in Terminal Action Potential Repolarization in the Fading Heart. The authors were Klein et al. from the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences, Bethesda, Maryland. The Inward Rectifier Potassium Current, or IK1, is activated during the phase 4 of the action potential to maintain the diastolic potential. The authors used a swine model to determine that IK1 is also important in the phase 3 repolarization, uh, which uh, is the terminal phase of the action potential before it reaches the full diastole. They showed that heart failure significantly downregulates IK1 resulting in prolongation of the phase 3. Removing IK1 therefore reduces the post-repolarization refractoriness, which could be proarrhythmic. In addition to heart failure, the Anderson-Towell syndrome is also associated with reduced IK1, leading to prolonged QT interval and increased ventricular arrhythmia. In summary, IK1 is important in speeding up the phase 3 repolarization and also in maintaining phase 4 diastolic potential. Reduction of IK1 is proarrhythmic by prolonging the action potential duration and raising the diastolic potential towards the depolarization threshold, which promotes slow ventricular uh, propagation and the ventricular arrhythmogenesis. The next article is entitled Highest Dominant Frequency and the Rotor Positions are Robust Markers of Driver Location During Non-Invasive Mapping of Atrial Fibrillation, a Computational Study. The study was authored by Rodrigo et al. from Valencia, Spain. There were forward and inverse problems of the ECG. The inverse problem, as the name implies, is to estimate sources from remote measurements. In other words, estimate the electrical event of the heart using surface electrical signals. The ECG imaging or ECGI is a novel method to solve the inverse problem. The algorithm takes the surface electrical signals and matches that with anatomical information to calculate the electrical activations in the heart. This is a potentially useful method to map the heart and help the EP physicians perform ablation studies. The problem is that there are plenty of noises in the chest which reduces the accuracy and the resolution 
for rotor detection. The authors used computer simulation methods to help reduce the noise and more accurately locate the rotor and the site of highest dominant frequency. They argue that these methods can more accurately locate the drivers of atrial fibrillation. This is a potentially clinical useful study. However, whether or not these methods, methods actually improve ablation outcomes remain untested. The next article is entitled Evaluation of Ablation Caster Technology Comparison between Thigh Preparation Model and an In Vivo Beating Heart. The article was written by Leshem et al. from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Harvard Medical School, Boston, Massachusetts. The radio frequency ablation casters are typically tested in animals before they are used in humans. The standard preparation is the in vivo thigh muscle model. The authors try to validate the method by comparing it with ablation in the beating swine heart. They found that the thigh muscle preparation model is a reasonable research tool for assessment of ablation lesion size and tissue adverse events, including steam pop, char, and the coagulant formation. It provides an accurate prediction of ablation lesion dimension in the heart at low RF energy settings, but may overestimate the ablation lesion dimensions at high energy settings. The next article is entitled Novel Dialysis and Furrowless Approach to Cryoablation Pulmonary Vein Occlusion Assessment. The authors were Avital et al., University of Illinois, Chicago, Illinois. The success of cryoablation depends in part on the quality of PV occlusion by the cryo balloon. The conventional approach includes injecting dye and see if it leaks back into the atrium. That procedure requires fluoroscopy. The authors invented a new dialysis method by including a temperature sensor distal to the balloon anterior surface. The 4 degrees C saline solution was then injected into the lumen uh, in the canine pulmonary vein. The authors found that the magnitude of temperature drop is predictive of the occlusion grade and the quality of PV isolation. This new method will need to be tested in, in humans, but uh, it is potentially useful in the cryoablation. Next article is entitled the Increased Sodium Calcium Exchange Reactivity Enhances Beta-Adrenergic Mediated Increase in Heart Rate. Whole heart study in homozygous sodium calcium exchanger over expressor mouse model. The paper was authored by Casey et al., University of Münster, Münster, Germany. The sinoatrial node automaticity is controlled by membrane clock and calcium clock. Among these two clocks, the calcium clock operates in the late diastole and is dependent on spontaneous calcium release, which activates the sodium calcium exchanger current to cause rapid terminal phase 4 depolarization and an action potential. Beta stimulation accelerates heart rate in part by accelerating the calcium clock. In the present study, 
the authors used the mouse model with sodium calcium exchanger overexpression. They found that the increased sodium calcium exchanger increased the heart rate response to adrenergic stimulation. Heart failure is also associated with sodium calcium exchanger overexpression. Therefore, it is possible to control heart rate in failing hearts by sodium calcium exchanger suppression. In addition, the same current is also responsible for after depolarization and triggered activity. This is also a therapeutic tar target for arrhythmia control. Unfortunately, at the present, there is no specific sodium calcium exchanger blocker that can be used to test that hypothesis. The next article is entitled Synchronization as a Mechanism for Low-Energy Anti-Fibrillation Pacing. This study proposes a new method to improve defibrillation efficacy. Cardiac fibrillation is associated with complex activation patterns. Therefore, when a shock is given, the electrical field interacts with myocytes at various stages of activation and recovery. When appropriate shock strengths interact with a vulnerable period, it can reinitiate fibrillation, resulting in an apparently failed defibrillation shock. The success rate of shock increases with voltage by exceeding the upper limit of vulnerability. Instead of increasing the shock stress, the authors performed rapid pacing to synchronize the activation of isolated canine atrial and ventricular tissues. A single defibrillation shock was then given to attempt defibrillation. The results showed that low-energy anti-fibrillation pacing could indeed reduce the defibrillation threshold in these preparations. There have been other studies in the past that tried, uh, tried to condition the atrium or the ventricles prior to defibrillation shocks and see if synchronization reduces defibrillation threshold. While theoretically exciting, it is very difficult to implant multiple electrodes at various parts of the heart to give effective low-energy anti-fibrillatory pacing. Therefore, more study will be needed before these techniques can be useful in humans. In addition to the above original research articles, the August issue of Heart Rhythm also includes a highly popular Josephson and Willens ECG lessons. Because Dr. Josephson has passed away, Dr. Willens is now a single author of these lessons. This month's ECG showed one tachycardia, initiating a different one in a 76-year-old woman. It is a lot of fun going through that ECG. I mourn the loss of Dr. Josephson, who is an outstanding mentor and a good friend of many of us. I also want to thank Dr. Willens for his willingness to teach us how to read ECGs. We also have four EP News articles covering heart rhythm case reports, clinical and basic science articles published in non-EP journals, and one uh, article specifically written for allied professionals. Finally, the August issue published a highly anticipated ACC AHA HRS guidelines for the evaluation and management of patients with syncope. Dr. Wing Kuang Xian was the lead author. For the Heart Rhythm Journal, 
I'm editor-in-chief Dr. Pinxian Chen.